Well, if you do have your Bibles, please go ahead and open with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're not going to start a new series quite yet. Uh, I'm going to preach from Philippians 2 this week as kind of the, the cap to the Sermon on the Mount, which I'll get back to in a second. Next week, Jacques is going to be preaching for us, and because uh, and, uh, Amy and I are going out of town this week, Jacques will be preaching next week, and then it'll be Palm Sunday, and then it'll be Easter already. So uh, we'll start up a new series probably at that point. But today I want to cap off the Sermon on the Mount by looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And the reason I want to do this is because, well, I want to talk about the fact that obedience is work. And uh, that will maybe make sense here in a few minutes, but the Sermon on the Mount doesn't really clearly present us with the content of the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount presents us with a depiction of a life that has been transformed by the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture for us of the fruit that flows out of the life that has been tra- the life that's been changed by the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to faith-filled obedience, but if we're not careful, We can read the Sermon on the Mount, and really, any New Testament passage that calls for obedience, we can read it in the same way that we read and hear Old Testament law. In other words, we can read commandments in the New Testament for Christians as things that God wants us to do in order to earn life rather than things that God wants us to do in light of the gracious gift of life that has already been secured for us. And what that means is that even for for the Christian, there's the constant threat of turning the Bible's demand for our obedience. And the Bible does demand our obedience. But there is the constant threat of turning that demand for obedience into works. Even for the Christian. It's possible to be a Christian with Pharisaic tendencies. And that's a very dangerous place to be. You could come away from the Sermon on the Mount and be a Pharisee. Trying to work your way to heaven by doing all the things that Jesus tells you to do. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we can't simply ignore all the commands. You can't ignore the New Testament's commands. Many, many commands about how we're supposed to live our lives as Christians. So despite the threat of turning obedience into works, we need to find a way to obey that doesn't try to earn. We have the difficult task of trying to understand how obedience for the Christian fits together with a gospel that says that we are justified apart from the works of the law. That's the hard work that we have to do. Put those two things together. We have to, on the one hand, acknowledge that God is not calling us to work hard in order to earn favor from Him. And on the other hand, acknowledge that once He has given us His gracious favor, we are called to work hard. That's what we have to figure out how to talk about. That's the way that we have to figure out how to live. And this is a concept that some Christians have a hard time with. If you start talking about the need for the Christian to respond to the gospel by living a life that requires him to toil 
requires him to strive, requires him to labor in the work of obedience to Christ, people start to get nervous because they associate striving and labor and toil with works. Some people seem to believe that if a Christian is striving and battling and toiling to obey Jesus, then this is nothing other than fleshly self-dependence. Aren't we supposed to let go and let God? So how do we toil? Well, the fact is, people who have a hard time are sometimes exactly right. They're exactly right. We can strive to obey God in a way that's nothing other than pharisaical self-righteousness. The Pharisees worked very, very hard. These were hard-working men. And they did it all in a way that did not please God. It was all powered by the flesh. But that doesn't mean that all striving has to be pharisaical and self-dependent. There certainly is a wrong way to strive, but there certainly is a right way to strive. And we've spent a lot of time listening to Jesus talk about the need to battle hard, battle very, very hard in the work of obedience, but I want to make sure that we know how to do it in a distinctly Christian way. I want to make sure we know how to strive as Christians. Strive like a Christian, not like a Pharisee. And Philippians 2, 12, and 13, I think is one of the clearest places where the New Testament calls Christians to work and to work hard, but then it also is one of the clearest places to see where this work gets its strength from. Where does the worker get his strength from? So let's look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Let me read it for you again. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So the issue is obedience, just like in the Sermon on the Mount, the issue is obedience. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a very clear exhortation for the Christian to work And what Paul means by that is work hard to obey. There it is. Very clear exhortation. New Testament, New Covenant, gospel-loving Paul says Christians must work. Notice that he doesn't say work for your salvation. Right? Read it again. Paul does not say work for your salvation. He's not telling us to earn something or merit something. Paul says work out your salvation. He's telling us that the gift of salvation, which is purchased by Jesus in full, is something that in some ways is actually still unfolding. You ever think think about this? Your salvation is still unfolding. There are elements of our salvation that we have not yet tasted. You ever ever think about that? We always talk about our salvation as though it were merely a past tense thing. I was saved. But that's not how the Bible always talks about salvation. Let me give you an example. At some point, your body, your physical body, will be raised from the dead. 
That's part of your salvation. That's part of what Jesus has done. He's rescued us from sin and death. And part of your salvation is being raised back up from the dead. Theologians call it our glorification. But we haven't tasted it yet. This is a part of your salvation that you have not yet tasted. Let me give you another example. There are sins in your life that you have not yet tasted victory over. Perhaps things in your life that you're not even aware of yet. Like you may have this deep issue with people pleasing or something and you're not even aware of it yet. You're not even, you won't even realize it until you're like 50 years old and then you'll be like, oh my gosh, I've been struggling with this all my life. And yet, Jesus has already purchased your freedom from that sin. It's already paid for. It's already done. Your salvation has been purchased, but you're not yet experiencing every penny of the inheritance. Some elements of your salvation are still unfolding. And while we're still here, we're still in this body, living in the corrupted world that we live in as citizens of the kingdom of God, though not yet perfected, we are suspended between two ages as Christians, aren't we? We're suspended between one old age and we're suspended between another new age, the age to come. And we find ourselves here and now entrenched in the midst of a war zone as the ages overlap. That's where we live, in the overlap of two ages, and it's a war zone. And because we are not yet living in our glorified state, The war is taking place not only everywhere around us, but this is crazy. The war between the overlap of the the ages is taking place inside of us. Paul refers to it as the spirit versus the flesh. That's the overlap of the ages at war in your own life, in your own soul. The spirit, Paul refers to, is the Holy Spirit. And He lives inside every Christian. And the flesh is a reference to the powerful, corrupted desires that still remain in us, despite the fact that God has already done the decisive work of adopting us and sealing us for the age to come. The war goes on. The flesh has desires. The Spirit has desires. And we taste both of those things in ourselves. We are saved, and yet our fleshly desires rage against us, drawing us towards sinful and destructive thoughts and actions. And therefore, we must work out our salvation. We have to battle to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to strive like we belong to the kingdom of heaven. We have to put these deeds of the death deeds of the flesh to death, we have to battle hard to obey God and live out the reality of what He's purchased for us. Salvation. Because in the unfolding story of God's work of salvation, we're still in the chapter of warfare. And warfare takes effort. Okay? So we're working out our salvation, not working for our salvation, And that means we have to battle, we have to work it out. And then there's a third thing I want you to notice in verse 12. Paul says that we have to do it with fear and trembling. We don't like that language. 
We don't like the language of, of working out our salvation, and we don't like the language of doing it with fear and trembling, for sure. Well, what Paul means is that we are those who stand in the presence of Almighty God. We do it with a sense of, as one commentator says, holy awe and wonder of the God who has saved us. You work out your salvation, you obey, you work hard to obey in wonder of the God who has saved you. Okay? So we have been saved. This salvation is unfolding. It requires me to work, to work hard in the battle for obedience. And as I battle to obey, Paul says, my heart should not be dead to God. My heart should have an affectionate sense of wonder. My heart should have an affectionate sense of awe before this God who has saved me and called me to obey. So I'm just going to call this the faith-filled, the faith-filled battle for obedience. The faith-filled battle for obedience. That's what we're called to. That's what Christian work looks like. Striving. It's faith-filled and it's a battle to obey. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear. And trembling. The faith-filled battle of obedience is essentially what Jesus is calling for in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Does that make sense? He's calling you to obey, but it's a faith-filled obedience. It takes a lot of hard work. The narrow, difficult path of discipleship is the faith-filled battle of obedience. But how do I strive like a Christian? I mean, how do I work out my salvation with fear and trembling without becoming a self-dependent, pharisaical legalist? We still, I don't think we've answered that question quite yet. What does it look like? Well, Paul's going to answer it for us in verse 13. Read with me, if you will, the first word of verse 13. For, therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for sometimes there is a for in the Bible that just changes everything. Because when you see a for, what the author is doing is he is undergirding what he just said with some sort of ground putting ground underneath it. He's giving reason for what he just said. You gotta work because for and this is the first main thing I want us to hear today because what Paul says here is meant to provide confidence for us so that we are able to do the hard work of obedience, so that we're able to do the very thing that Paul just commanded in verse 12, so that we are able to live the life that Jesus calls for in the Sermon on the Mount. This is meant to strengthen us. God wants you to work for it is God who is at work in you. You can work because God's at work. That's supposed to undergird it, and that changes everything, doesn't it? Well, we'll see. Paul says God wants you to work because God's at work in you. 
the reason you can do the hard work of obedience is because God is at work in your life to provide what you need in order to do that work. We spend all this time talking about how Jesus wants us to live this life of kingdom citizenship. The narrow, hard path requires an immense amount of strength, years of dedicating your life, laboring to build a house on a rock. And this passage says that you and I are not the source of the power. God is at work in us. And praise Him for that. Praise God He's at work. Because I'm tired. I'm tired. I don't have any strength in myself. I'm a weakling. I'm a failure. And I'm supposed to walk this path. And I'm supposed to build this house. How will I ever stay on the straight and narrow? How will I be able to work out this salvation faithfully for decades to come? How are you going to do it? This is how. God is at work in me. And God is at work in you. If you're trusting in Christ. And if God is at work in me. And if God is at work in you. Then God will get the job done. You may remember this very encouraging verse that Paul gave to the Philippians one chapter earlier in verse 6 of chapter 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Praise God. You want to know where you're going to find strength to work? God is at work. You're tired. The road looks long, narrow, hard. There's a storm coming. How am I going to build on this rock so that it it stands on the day of judgment? I'll tell you how. God is at work in you. You'll be okay. Paul's going to get a little more specific here in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to will his good pleasure and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in us and the work that he's doing is impacting our will and it's impacting our work. So let's take a closer look at the idea of work since we're already on the topic. Work being fueled by God. There's a lot more to say about this. The New Testament talks about it in a few places at least. Let me give you one. 1 Corinthians 15.10. You don't need to... Flip there if you don't want to. I'll I'll read it out loud for you here. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Here's what Paul says. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Referring to the other apostles. That's such a bold statement. I worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet not I but the grace of God that is with me. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, 
but the grace of God that is with me. Paul pulls these two things together. Paul's work and God's work at work in Paul, as Paul does his work. It requires effort on Paul's part. I worked harder than any of them, but apparently Paul is not the ultimate power source. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He talks to the Colossians in the same way in chapter 1. He says, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul has a ministry of teaching. He's discipling these people. And then he says, for this I toil. So there it is again. You've got an apostle, covenant, new covenant believing. Uh, he's not just saying, I just let go and let God do the work through me. He's, he said, I toil. I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So again, Paul regards his discipleship responsibilities as hard work. He uses words like toil and struggle. And yet he says that Christ is the source of the energy that's powerfully working in and through Paul's life. Peter says something similar, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Peter says, as each has received a gift, okay, talking about gifts given to us by God, spiritual gifts, use it to serve one another. Okay, so I got to now use some energy here. I got to serve people. God commands it in his word. This is an obedience issue. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There it is again. I got work to do. God supplies the strength so that in my service, God's the one who's empowering it. He continues. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if you have a spiritual gift of service, then utilize that gift by serving other people. But be sure to labor not in your own strength, but in the strength that God supplies to you so that He gets the glory for your labor. That's how it works. So the point is... that there is some sense in which our call to hard work in the Christian life isn't supposed to stimulate self-reliant effort. The call to obedience shouldn't stimulate self-reliant, pharisaical effort in our lives. Rather, the call to obedience is a charge to somehow employ God's strength so that He who is at work in us gets the glory for the effort that He has strengthened us to perform. That's how it works. So, how does God work in us to produce this? How does God work in us to produce strength, power? And this is the second main thing I want to reflect on today. The first was that God, God is the one who's at work in us to produce this work. 
That should be a great comfort to us. The second thing I want to focus on is how does he produce this work that he calls for? How does this operate? How does he work in us to produce work from us? And the New Testament in particular makes it pretty clear that the way that he gets power to his people is through the presence of his... Everybody got it? His Spirit. It's through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Living in his people. This really struck me a few months ago because I was working my way through the New Testament. I just kind of saw this theme popping up again. The people of God are empowered people. They're not just inspired people. They're not just people with good attitudes. They're not just happy-go-lucky people. They have power. And the source of that power is the Spirit of God. Let me give you some examples. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, which we went through, so you're familiar with those, talks a lot about God's Spirit empowering the church with gifts for the purpose of producing loving service to the body of Christ. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7. What you're listening for is spirit and power. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So the Holy Spirit empowers believers for the sake of us being able now to serve one another in the church body. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that God's spirit empowers believers to testify about Jesus Christ. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God to proclaim the gospel of God in the world, testifying to Jesus. Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. By the power of God's spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8.13. By the power of God's spirit, our very bodies will be raised from the dead one day, Romans 8.11. Christians are empowered people because the spirit of God himself lives inside of us. Okay, so here's what we've seen so far. God is at work in us to strengthen us, to work in such a way that we have power from Him to obey. And He is the source of that power, and He gets the glory for our labor. Second, the way in which the New Testament often speaks of God's power in us is in terms of the Holy Spirit's presence in us. He is the one who empowers us to do what God has called us to do. So, if God is at work in us through His Spirit, to give us power and strengthen us for obedience, how does the Spirit empower us to to obey? What is that power? What is this powerful encounter like? How do we experience the power of the Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit strengthen us for obedience? Have you thought about this before? You probably have some assumptions about how this works. I don't know. I think I did. Probably still do. How does the Spirit... I mean, this is not surprising. We, know, we all know this. We all know that the, that the Holy Spirit lives inside believers. We all know that the Holy Spirit is powerful. That probably means that God is giving me power. But what is that power? 
Is it like a coffee buzz? Like, do we ask God, fill us up, fill me up with your spirit, and then expect him to give some sort of euphoric, physiological sensation that invigorates us and stimulates us to do what God asks us to do? Is that what he's talking about? Now, I want to clarify something. I actually do believe that some people experience the presence of God's Spirit in very euphoric ways. I believe that. Sometimes the presence of the Spirit may be attended with physical sensations that are invigorating, that are refreshing. So I'm not saying that these things don't exist, but my question is, is that what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of the power that drives the Christian to build his house on the rock? Are we depending on the Holy Spirit as though he's like a heavenly energy drink? Is that that the power to lay your life down in service to the nations? I don't think that's what Paul's referring to. As wonderful as the perceptible and at times nearly tangible presence of God's Spirit is, I don't think that's the main way in which the Holy Spirit gives us power for obedience. That's not the main way in which God is at work in us to produce work from us. So let me read to you again the way in which Paul talks about God is at work in you. Philippians 2.13 For God it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This says that God is working in me and you to the end that we should work for his good pleasure. That is we should be obedient to what he desires for us. But not only does God produce the outcome that we should work for his good pleasure, but Paul says that God is working in us to produce a will for his good pleasure. God is at work to transform our will so that we desire what he desires. And there it is. There's the power that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Brothers and sisters, this is the chief power behind Christian living. The Spirit of God is at work in us to give power to us by transforming the desires of our hearts so that we have a supernatural desire for the things that delight the heart of God. This is how God most fundamentally energizes us for obedience. He conforms our will to His will. Because you see, when the will is bent away from God, we simply have no motivation to pursue Him. I mean, think of how spring fever works. This is a nice day outside today. All the way up through high school. Changed a little bit for me after high school. But all the way up through high school... When the days started to get longer, and the sunshine started to get warmer, and the snow started to melt, and baseball season was beginning, I became a very poor student, because I had no desire 
for study. My will, the chief power source to get me to move towards what I am going to do, my will was set somewhere else. It was already engaged somewhere else, so I had no motivation for books. Ugh. Now that actually changed when I became a Christian. I started reading a lot. But up to that point, I did not want to read. I wanted to play ball. And similarly, if our will is not engaged, then there's no power for Christian obedience. There's no true power for Christian obedience. When we hear Jesus telling us to love our enemies and store up treasure in heaven and and seek God's kingdom, build your life on the rock of his word, Paul is exhorting, exhorting us to put to death the deeds of your flesh, be willing to suffer for the sake of others, renew your minds in the word of God, Peter is calling us to humility. David is telling us, raise your hands and your voices and praise. And it all sounds so boring. Like a dry list of religious, pious activities. It seems lifeless. It seems dull. I want to play baseball. Because that's where my heart is. We don't desire doing good for our enemies. We don't desire heavenly treasure. We don't desire the kingdom. We don't desire the word. We don't desire humility. We don't desire to worship. And you know why? It's because we don't desire God. That's why. So we're not not motivated to pursue Him. And we're not motivated to obey Him. And then God does a miracle. Amen? God does a miracle. It had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with anything that you did. You didn't plan it. It just sort of happened. You heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You maybe heard it a thousand times before. But this time, this time, Something is striking you differently. This season of your life, this is different. Because God is at work in you. God is doing a miracle in you. And simultaneously, there are two things that are taking place. God is opening your eyes to see who He is. Let's call it revelation. God is opening your eyes to behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then he's filling your heart with delight. Let's call it celebration. Revelation and celebration. This is the event in which God is turning you into a worshiper. This is a miracle. He's changing your will in a decisive act of grace called Regeneration, or sometimes we refer to it as being born again. This is the moment you truly become a Christian. And the transformation did not consist in walking down an aisle. The transformation does not consist in praying a prayer. Just like being born from your mother, it wasn't something that you did. It was something that happened to you. 
Apart from your initiative, apart from your planning, apart from your desire, apart from your will, apart from your involvement, God acts freely and unconstrained in a work of revelation where He is sovereignly opening the eyes of the blind and saying, let there be light, and there is light in the heart. The Lamb of God, surprisingly, appears to be beautiful in your sight. That's a miracle. You can't make that happen. You can't do that to your heart. You can't make yourself love something you don't love. You can't make yourself love the taste of mayonnaise if you don't like the taste of mayonnaise. That's not how the will works. It's as though we never understood what grace is. This awakening, this revelation, and the celebration that rises in the heart. It's like, I never knew what grace was. I can't believe this. I've heard the gospel so many times. I never understood how marvelous the love of God is. And then, and then you're dumbfounded. And you're sorrowful because of your sin. But you're so thankful because you're getting grace. You're getting it. And you're relieved. And you're hopeful. And it's though you've been living in darkness your whole life and suddenly everything comes to light and, and you can see clearly. And it's because you're different. You changed. Because God has worked in you to change your will. Through a revelation of who He is, He's brought about a celebration of who He is within your heart. He's made you into a worshiper. The Old Testament told us that this was coming, actually. Moses spoke about it to Israel as he was explaining the transformation that would take place in the hearts of God's people in the last days. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is the great work of God to bring about changed lives in His people. He transforms the heart. Ezekiel writes about it as well. And I want you to hear what God says in Ezekiel because He's going to connect the transformation of the heart to obedience. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There it is. Changed heart results in obedience. God changes the heart. He changes the will. He changes the desires. And it moves people to walk in his ways. Ezekiel ties it all together. He talks about the spirit of God dwelling within us. He talks about our hearts being transformed. And he talks about the outcome being obedience. And the reason that we'll obey is not because we listened to the Sermon on the Mount and we felt a heavy-hearted religious duty to walk a narrow path that we really don't want to walk. 
The power for obedience does not lie within the external coercion of the commands and the warnings of Scripture. The commands and the warnings play a role by revealing what God wants for us and by revealing the consequences of disobedience, but they are not in themselves the power for obedience. The power for obedience is rooted in the internal compulsion that God has miraculously ignited in our hearts. We'll obey Jesus because God has worked in us to bring about a will for His good pleasure. We'll obey because we want to obey. We'll obey because we love Jesus. We celebrate Jesus Christ. We have an appetite for Him now. An appetite for true beauty. And it's our desire to know Him, to obey with Him, to be with Him, to follow Him, and avoid anything that threatens the opportunity to apprehend this treasure. Because you want it. Because He's at work in you to change your will. Now I want you to hear something wonderful. Uh, You can't do this. God is the only one who can do this. We don't have the power to change our own hearts. We couldn't give ourselves new birth. It's the work of the Spirit. That was the case when we first came to Jesus, and it's the case right now for you. Christian, you can't change your heart. The primary power for obedience comes from a will that loves God, a heart that treasures God. And God is at work in His people to increasingly change our hearts so that we delight in Him more and more and therefore we increasingly delight in His ways. This is a miraculous work of God. We cannot produce it. Only He can produce it. And the main way in which He does it is by opening our eyes to see with greater clarity the glories of who He is. So He's going to bring about revelation to bring about the celebration. With increasing revelation comes increasing celebration. And therefore, brothers and sisters, if you're wanting to find strength for obedience, if you want your heart's passion to be ignited by the excellencies of God, if you want God to change your will, to do what only God can do, then there is something actually that you can do. There is something that you can do. Yes, only God can do the miracle, but there's something that you can do to, I don't know, we might say it this way, set yourself up for the miracle. You can put your eyes on the place where His glory is most fully on display. You can devote your vision to the place where God's revelation of Himself is most exquisitely demonstrated. That you can do. Which means that we must be a people whose eyes are fixed on the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of all that God is for us. You can set your eyes on Jesus, daily remind yourself of who He is, what He has done, and you will find that as you set your eyes on Christ, God will, by the, by the gracious internal working of His Holy Spirit, God will change your will and give you power for obedience. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. This is, a, this is a verse that Pastor Edward used to 
uh, bring before us regularly. He says, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So here we are, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding Jesus Christ. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's how you're changed. You, you, you become different by beholding the glory of the Lord. Because as you behold, God changes the heart. He wakes you up to see the glories. And with increasing revelation comes increasing celebration. And if the heart is celebrating Jesus, then the, the feet will follow. If the heart is celebrating Jesus, the feet will follow. And you may have to work hard to keep your eyes on Jesus. And you may have to strive to keep your feet on the narrow path. But your heart will be fueling you because the Holy Spirit has given you a taste of something wonderful. And you will have power to put one foot in front of the other in pursuit of the glorious God revealed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So Lord, we pray that you would give us greater and greater revelation of who you are. We pray that we would not be blind. We pray that we would not strive as those who are just muscling up energy to do what you say, but rather we pray that we would strive as those who have found great delight in our hearts rising up as we set our eyes on Jesus. Would you strengthen us for obedience by making us more and more passionate worshipers, Lord? And that's what it comes down to. The greater the passion is for you, the greater our hearts are engaged in worship, the more power there will be for obedience. Because you will be the delight of our hearts. You will be all that we want. You will be what we are pursuing. God, protect us from spring fever. Protect us from thinking that the the things of this world are more beautiful. Awaken us to you, Lord. Reveal yourself to us and create in us a celebration of all that you are. So that we can be the kind of people who live in obedience to you by the power that you give to us so that you will receive all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.